Conversations with Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. This is a music podcast, and speaking of music, that song that played me in is entitled Come Along. It is from the album The One and Only Clark and the Himselfs, and my guest today is Clark from Clark and the Himselfs. And let me tell you this. This album is great. I also got an album called Pot Sounds. I got that one on vinyl. I got this one on Bandcamp uh, digitally because it's not out available on vinyl right now, but it should be. And I saw Clark perform. She opened up for Deerhoof. I almost didn't go early to see the opening acts, but I wanted to be a cool dude and support and as soon as Clark started playing, I was like, holy fuck, thank God I came to this. And it was a great set. And I immediately was in love with Clark's music. And I got home. I bought Pot Sounds on vinyl. I bought Clark, the one and only, on digital Bandcamp. And I messaged Clark immediately on Instagram and said, please do the podcast. So here we are. Clark said, yes, we're here doing the podcast. And it was... It was good. Um, but go to the show notes. You could buy the Bandcamp links for Clark and the himself is in the show notes. So please purchase, stream. Uh, the one and only album isn't available, on I, I think, on streaming. So you have, to, you have to go to Bandcamp and buy it to listen to it. At least it's not on the app I use. But anyway, uh, also, just in addition, side note, if you're a first-time listener... Thank you for being here. Uh, I, I I talked to a lot of musicians. There is a part two to this episode. Clark and I talked for almost two hours. 20 or 30 minutes live on my Patreon. You could go to themattdwire.com, become a Patreon subscriber, and listen to the part two. Um, I had to do a lot of fancy editing because Clark tells a very interesting story about dealing with Live Nation. And it was at the very end of our talk, so I actually cut that and put it... In, in the first hour here. So anyway, but there's 20 minutes of talking about pirates in the Patreon exclusive. If you go to the com, become a Patreon subscriber, $5. Most of my episodes have a part two. You can go to the com and you could see all the people I've had in the past. It has been a bunch. I mentioned Deerhoof just a few minutes ago. I had Greg and uh, another member of Deerhoof whose name I'm flaking on and he's my friend. Uh, you know, I have kids. I don't sleep. I don't sleep. John. It's John. Um, but I'm not going to edit that out because I've had a real motherfucker getting this intro recorded. My wife came in and fed the dogs, screwed all kinds of things up. Anyway, com. Also, you can go to that website. I produced an album with Sub Pop Records recently along with Adam McKay and uh, curated an album. It's called The 11th Hour Songs for Climate Justice all proceeds go to the Climate Emergency Fund. I'm probably, out of all the shit I've done in my life, and I've done some pretty cool stuff, proudest of that, definitely the coolest. And uh, I'll, I fucking won't lie, climate change keeps me up. It kept me up last night. I'll wake up at 2 in the morning, it will enter my head, and I'm fucked for the night of sleep. It's a serious uh, thing. So you could do your part and help the Climate Emergency Fund, and we could... To pay for activism and people who are helping spread knowledge and uh, civil disobedience. So that's also you could buy that at find that at uh, sub on Sub Pop's website. All that's in the show notes. Go to the link in the show notes. 
take you right to the album. And speaking of websites, if you need a website, you could go to kellyrdwire.com. That's the person I make babies with, too. Not anymore. I'm not going to make any more. I got snipped. Uh, but uh, she can build your website. She's great at websites. She does a lot of fancy ones. I'm not going to list it. You can go to her fucking website and see who the fancy people are she makes websites for. And I think that covers everything. I'm just going to repeat this. Clark and the Himselves is great. I'm not going to go much into You Heard the Music. That's a good song. God damn it. Go support and buy more music. And I'm just going to give one more shout-out to Perpetual Doom. Uh, check out the Perpetual Doom label, who I think you should, you know, also sign and work with Clark. But that's a whole other thing. Uh, but they're doing a bundle. $200. Go to the Perpetual Doom Bandcamp or Perpetual Doom's website and support that label. It's a truly independent label. They don't have a subsidiary or they're not a subsidiary. It's a true it's a guy and his wife, Lou, and they 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 put out great records. Lee Baggett, Little Wings. I think they got something coming out with Will Oldham. It's truly a great label. Go to the Perpetual Doom. Find them out there. I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, they're doing a bundle thing for like $200 a year. You get records here and there and stuff. It's really great. Do it. Fucking do it. Okay, that's it. And also buy Clark's music. And please enjoy my conversation with Clark. <laughs> I was at the farmer's market the other day and there's this person going around with like a Ziploc bag of magic mushrooms. And I knew there were magic mushrooms because he was going to everyone. It was like, hey, does anyone want to buy any magic mushrooms? It was probably like two-eighths of it. But he went around to every single person at the market. That's it was, crazy. It was pretty brazen. When I was young, it was like it took a effort. You'd have to wait for the Grateful Dead to come in town to get your hallucinogens. And then they'd dissipate and then the dead would come back and everyone would get them again. I was big on the, I was big on the LSD Clark. Oh, nice. I actually, I heard, uh, the most of the psychedelic trade was based off of grateful dead concert tours. Like in America, the DEA, uh, studied it and it was all like, and, and I, I don't know, it was like LSD and mushrooms or whatever else, but it, you know, it would go up in a town, uh, whenever the grateful dead came to town. That makes sense. Uh, and then it was later fish when the dead stopped touring. It was the fish tours. Do you get into either of these bands? No, not, not, not really. <laughs> I, 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 I've listened to them. Sure. Yeah. I've been surprised by who likes the dead and who doesn't like that. Like it's been with this podcast. I've almost made it like a, question i ask every time because i've been really shocked by who likes the grateful dead and who people i think would yeah. who would hate it hate them love them and it made me go back and try to figure out why i hated them and if i was wrong i mean i don't i don't hate the grateful dead and i, I don't you know i don't have any judgments for anyone <laughs> who likes those types of bands <laughs> even even though it's easy you know it'd be really easy to uh <coughs> But, you know, I don't know. If you were to give me an option of any of those bands, I'd probably choose the Grateful Dead, you know, over... 
string cheese incident or something. I, I couldn't even know. tell you. I, I don't even know what the string cheese is. Like, I've heard the name, and I th- for a while I thought it was like some weird thing that the Guns N' Roses did. But I think that yeah. was the sp- spaghetti incident or something. I, I think it's where you go to buy psychedelic drugs that's a string cheese uh, <laughs> that's where you go to get the brown acid maybe oh okay yeah probably the good the good acid did you do you because i know we messaged about this briefly and you said that you're kind of a jaded musician do you are you jaded towards people's taste or do you just be like uh how do you do you, do you judge people for their taste that's a weird question isn't it no, I mean, I don't, it's not a weird question and I don't judge people for their taste. Uh, I mean, I don't, I, I guess in large part, I kind of don't know other people's taste really, you know, because I don't, I'm not privy to like what other people are listening to necessarily. Like I can, every once in a while I get like a glimpse or something, but there, you know, there's only, I mean, I have friends whose music I like, but it's, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know what other people are listening to. I, and, and I say that, but it was, it's mostly just, uh, you know, I go over to Don Bull's house and he plays me these junk shop glam seven inches. And that's the person I was thinking of whose musical taste I like, who I judge uh, in a positive <laughs> manner. I, when I first moved to LA, I would see Don Bull's everywhere. And I didn't quite know who he was. Like I knew there was... It was somebody, but I, because I was kind of germs, not savvy. Like I knew who the germs were, but I didn't know what they looked like other than Pat Smear. Yeah. And it was weird because I would see him like in way out places. Like one time, like in the city of industry in like some weird warehouse. And I was like, how the fuck is this guy here again? <laughs> like it was just so weird. Might be where he lives actually. That might have been. <laughs> oh, maybe. I thought he lived in that. Maybe that's a different place. I don't know. Maybe. But like bus stops, like just everywhere, it was bizarre. Yeah, and that I was just like, about right. And then I figured out who he was, and I was like, oh, same with the singer for uh, Brian Jonestown Massacre. I would see him everywhere, and I was just like, who's this crazy son of a bitch? And then I saw the documentary, and I was like, oh, it's that crazy fuck. <laughs> yeah, I see. Uh, or one of my jokes in Los Angeles is like, you can. Or maybe I'm stealing this joke. I don't know. But it's like you, you, you can throw a stone in this town and hit an ex-member of the Brian Jonestown massacre. That's funny and true. Yeah, I, I find that, you know, you run into them often. I worked in a restaurant and they would like cycle through. Like it would just, there would always be one member of the band <laughs> working at the restaurant. One nodding yeah. off while frosting cupcakes. Yeah. Um... <laughs> no comment I don't know <laughs> I'll tell you who that well, I can't if I could remember their their name but back how did you because you come from Boise which I don't know much about Boise or Idaho but I have preconceived notions about Idaho and I don't know like but that's not ever the wise route to take because people have yeah I mean they're probably true like probably whatever your preconceived notions about Idaho is correct hey is my microphone does that sound good should I put a I have like a little filter I can put on it oh you sound fine okay cool the volume's good I just wanted to check I just set it up very quickly everything's great I appreciate you asking cool um 
Yeah, Idaho. I don't know. I mean, I like the state of Idaho. I, I, I find it to be a pretty state. And then, you know, Boise, I, I feel like growing up there was kind of just, just like depressing and uh, kind of terrible, I guess. <laughs> But some people say it's, you know, like, I don't know. It was crazy. Like when I was growing up there, I like, I remember talking to one of my friends on AOL instant messenger when I was like 12 or 13. And she was telling me, I guess we were having kind of like an adult, like what adult, some sort of adult conversation about like what we would do later in life. She was telling me like she, if, if she ever had kids, she would move back to Boise to raise them here. And I was like, that is like the worst idea. Like, I don't know. Like I was like living this nightmare currently. And I was like, I can't believe you would bring somebody else into this situation. Yeah. We talked about this on, on the Instagrams, but like, cause we kind of had similar weird lives not lives but like we grew up around this sort of the same situations and but i had chicago to, ex- to escape to did you have something to escape to or were you just kind of oh. no <laughs> <laughs> i mean i had music like that was I, I guess as an escape uh and boise you know it's not you know there's like you know boise gets touted as like so idaho is like this kind of red state you know like the Aryan nations used to live there I think they do again now. <laughs> um, but then it's, it's, it's like more, it's like libertarian, you know, and there's like, you know, kind of like, you, you can't really pin it down necessarily because the pe- the people you think of is these kind of like, I don't know, like Trump loving red state libertarians or something. They're like, they're not, they don't fit the exact stereotype because there's surprises like with those kind of people in Idaho. Like you, you'll be surprised at, the type of stuff they're into. Um, but then Boise is kind of, you know, gets, gets known as this like, you know, democratic bastion or like liberal bastion. Cause it's like the city there or something, but, but, you know, even like somebody who calls themselves a Democrat in Boise or like, and I don't know, I don't even like using those words. I don't know what the word, like somebody who, <laughs> more liberal believe, so, so yeah somebody who like believes more in like equal rights or something like is is actually not in Boise you know like they're they could view themselves as a liberal but like in reality they're not you know they're like the opposite of it but because they don't have a lot of comparisons you know that's a that's so they don't they don't actually know like what that is I guess I don't know but uh <laughs> I don't know. And then I kind of had, yeah, I guess like music was kind of, cause I didn't really have, like, there's not, you know, there's like Boise doesn't have good examples. And so I had to find uh, like good examples of things, you know, to like make myself feel better. And I guess mostly through music, I found that. Was there a decent music scene that you could get into or find or, or was it yeah. still... <clears throat> Um, I think, yeah, no, Boise actually has had, I don't know, maybe had at this point or has, uh, like a really great music scene. And, um, and I was like, I was in bands when I was younger, like when I first got an electric guitar, I started a band, uh, with my friend Tuck Nelson, my friend Brett McConnell, um, like when we were kids, like when we were like 10 or 11 or something. Um, and then I was kind of able 
I don't know. Like that kind of, but I was like, that was the start of like, I was kind of introduced to like the local music scene in, in, in some ways. Uh, and then, I don't know. But yeah, and then, it, and during that area, there, there was like a lot of other, like people we knew like of our age who were starting bands also. And like those, all those people would like later grow up to become part of the music scene, you know, and there, but there was, I don't know, there was like during that time, there was like enough of a kind of music community to like, you know, show me like a window of like something that was out there. And then, you know, maybe I'll, you know, like later on when I was like a teenager, I feel like I actually, uh, started like playing shows around town and like meeting music people. Um, in Boise. I when, don't know. That's not a very good way to tell that story. Maybe. <laughs> when you were 10, though, how, when did you find yourself being pulled towards music or inspired to do it? Was there a dis- any distinct moment where you're like, music, that sound, I'm going after that? Well, I don't, I don't think there was any, there wasn't like a, oh, like it just kind of felt like, like as I, became conscious uh you know when i was like i don't know whenever that happened two or three years old it just seems like it it was like in my life you know like generally and i had a piano in my house and i i like knew how to play piano and then i I remember taking piano lessons when i was younger but i would play stuff like that and i would play instruments that were around which was mostly just piano um and then at some point, like, I really wanted an electric guitar, like, you know, when I was, like, nine or ten. Because I, I I played one, actually. My friend's older brother had, a, um, like, a Fender electric that I played. And it was, like, I don't know. I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. And so, um, so I tried for a while to get an electric guitar. And then, like, that's kind of, I don't know. It was, like, at that point, it was, like, I guess rock and roll was, like or I was like, I don't know, because I got my electric guitar and then I went over uh, to my friend Tuck Nelson's house who was like drumming on boxes at that point. Um, and like we started a band like that day. And then my friend Brett, I knew had a bass guitar, like an electric bass guitar. So I told him to bring that. And so it was like, I don't know, like the instant I started playing guitar, like it was in a rock and roll band, you know, essentially. And so it was like, like figuring that stuff out with my two friends uh, was that like, that was more of a moment <clears throat> that was more of like a shift change, but there wasn't any, there wasn't like a, there wasn't any more moment in my life where I like wasn't doing music. It seemed like, I don't know. Did you immediately take the position of front person? Yeah, I mean, I get, yeah, I guess so. Cause, well, I had the electric guitar. <laughs> so, <laughs> I brought the songs too. I knew a couple of like songs, you know. Uh, and then I, and then kind of by default, I, I think I started singing because nobody else wanted to. And, you know, I kind of, and, you know, and we, we sucked like pretty badly <laughs> at first, but. <laughs> Wait, at 10, I, you weren't, like, really busting it out already? <laughs> well, I mean, we were, I don't know, we had something. We had, our first song was this, our first original song was this song called Disturbed, uh, which is, uh, starts with a minor, a minor. I can still remember it, kind of. That's okay. Um, but, I don't know. There was actually, well, I was, like, thinking about this the other day, but we had a really, we all went to the same elementary school, and we had a really good 
like music teacher, like in the music class. Do you remember that? Yeah. I don't know if that happens as much as it used to. I think they're just getting rid of all the music and art programs. Yeah. They just want us to be, you know, fucking workers. Yeah. We just live in a (laughs) sterile world, you know, where nothing exciting ever happens. Um, But I I had this really good music teacher and her name was uh, Mrs. Walsh. Um, And I mean, that was like a lot of like, honestly, music class is super important because a lot of the exposure, I. You know, and that's maybe it was like the the whole by the time I became conscious is because you would do music stuff in school, you know, and even even in like in kindergarten, you would sing, you know, sometimes you're required to, but you would just do it anyway, just sing like kindergarten songs or like there's like the name game or these other songs like children, like those songs kids sing on the, the, the playground or whatever, like those are rock and roll songs, you know, they don't sound like that initially, but it's like the way they're written it's it's like totally a thing and so i think i like got a lot of that but the music class was really cool and there's this one moment uh where the teacher she she wanted to do like a beach boys thing where she she got the whole class to like sing beach boys songs um and then she had heard that you know we had like a little band going on or something like that but she like enlisted uh my friend uh you know like our band which actually included my other friend Wyatt um I think at that time who later left the band um but she but yeah so we had like drums bass and you know two guitars or whatever but she recruited us to learn all these Beach Boys songs to be the backing band for like the fourth grade class that's pretty good. So we learned like 30 Beach Boys songs like as a band you know basically and then with the chorus of kids or something but that's, I think that's when we actually like learned how to play together, you know, is just by learning that's all the Beach Boys songs. Pretty definitive moment. I think so. Yeah. I kind of forgot about it for a while, but I look, I, I, I don't know. I think enough time has passed where I can look back on it and be like, oh, like that's the point where we stop sucking probably. <laughs> like when we is there any moment, is there any connection between that moment and your album Pot Sounds? Uh, or is that a leap for me? <laughs> I don't know. Not. I mean, the Beach Boys. Yeah, that's the connection, I guess. Yeah. Uh, which is, by the way, I love that album of yours. And the oh, Beach Boys. But thank you. I've been listening to yours more than the Beach Boys, for the record. Yeah. That was, we recorded that on the anniversary of Pet Sounds and Jim Ross, who engineered the album. To, it was kind of like a nickname for the album, but I couldn't think of a better name. But he came up with the name. But I wanted to get, it was released a little bit after the fact, but I wanted to release it the same year as, because they were doing a whole bunch of Pet Sounds reissues that year. So it'd be, if I, if I could have snuck the Pot Sounds in there at the record <laughs> store, you know, alongside the Pet Sounds. Somebody might have grabbed the wrong copy and started, bought yours instead? Yeah, possibly. <laughs> I mean, they, they'd have to have no idea what the cover looks like. Uh when, I wanted to go back to your Disturbed song. Do you, what were the influences back? I'm just curious because that's that's pretty young. Like I I talked to a lot of people about when they were young and playing, and that I would say ten is a little ahead of the curve. Seven, the whole your yeah. whole curve is a little ahead of the. I mean, curve. I, I think I was eleven at that time. I think Tuck was ten. I don't know. I might have been ten, but yeah, I don't know. So th- I mean, that was that was just some song or whatever. But it was. Uh, I don't know. Cause then we had, it's like, 
I, I guess it was just easy for me to like, cause I could come up with songs and I remember, I remember like writing songs on piano that were actually like closer to kind of like playground type of songs, you know, when I was like seven or eight. Um, but I, like the first kind of real, like when I, I like I, I got that electric guitar and I learned how to play uh, Come As You Are by Nirvana and then also Smoke on the Water by Deep Purple, but not the whole song, like just the, just the lick, just the like, and like, I love that for generations, that is like one of the first songs everybody learns. It seems like. Yeah. And then I knew, I knew Louie Louie too, also. That one's pretty easy. Um, but we would just do not even the whole song. Like we just jam on that just to come as you are riff, you know, for like five minutes, <laughs> but not jam. We just play it, you know? Uh, and then we kind of did, but then I don't know. But then before that, like we knew all these fucking, like we didn't play any of the beach boys songs. I think we all just forgot about that. Oh wait, no, we didn't know it. Know those at that time. I don't know. That wasn't, those weren't like band songs. Those were school songs. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. We just, but that was, you know, and those guys, like, I still work with Chuck a lot. Like Chuck works on all the Clark and themselves albums. Like he, uh, like, you know, I guess kind of like mixes them and engineers a few of them. And he lives in London now, but if we're, if we're ever in this, like he, he worked on, he did the audio for the video record and the Mimesis and Alterity album. And like in your heart, you know, she's Clark and himself was just Tuck and I kind of, you know, producing that over the internet, I guess. Like I would record stuff and send him the raw tracks and send him like a rough mix. And then he would send me stuff back from England. And like, I don't know, like a lot of stuff. So like Tuck, Tuck and I are still that's crazy. Know, good friends. That's you know? like, I don't know how old you are, but that's a long time to be like, I don't know. That's a lot of history. That's an interesting concept to me. I know I'm babbling right now. <laughs> yeah, no, that's okay. But yeah, no, yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of, you know, I mean, I, I, I really, you know, I, I like, uh, it, it's, I mean, yeah, Tuck's been a friend for a while. He, he lived just across, you know, we were, in, we lived in the same neighborhood. Right. So his house was like, like a five minute walk away from mine or something. There's like a difference between old friends and an old a creative thing because I have friends that I've done shit with for like 20 years and it's like it's different like you have a almost a this is going to sound hokey Clark almost a spiritual connection there's like a different connection than just like hey we go see baseball games and drink beer not that I either of us yeah. do that <laughs> well it's I mean it's similar to that except instead of baseball games uh, we just make albums and yeah. Drink beer, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. But there's like an emotional, to me, there's a, like a, I don't know, you expose yourself to a degree emotionally when you create with somebody. Or am I, judge me, Clark. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I feel like. Judge me. I'm, I'm not judging you. I'm trying to, I'm thinking about your comment. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I feel like I. I feel like I'm exposing myself more to like the people who end up listening to the song after whomever like you're collaborating with. I feel like the collaboration part is, is most, is, is just, is just like fun. I don't, I don't feel like there's like a lot of exposing going on uh, because you're, 
like, I don't know. It's just coming up idea with ideas with like another person or like, you know, you have this initial, like, and it, it's, we operate the same way as we did when I was like 11 years old. Like, and, you know, I come up with something and then I'll show it to Tuck and then he'll make it better. When you said, we'll be finished, you know, <laughs> when you said you feel like you expose yourself when you're releasing it, do you, do you get vulnerable? Do you feel vulnerable when an album is going out into the world? Uh, well, no, I feel most vulnerable, like when the song songs are written, I guess, or depend, I guess if it is a vulnerable song or whatever. And to some extent, maybe when the album goes out, but it's, it's mostly just, you know, and I guess maybe, maybe like the first person to hear it is like someone you are collaborating with, but, but like Tuck and I, we don't have like a, a it's not, there's not like emotions or I don't know. <laughs> we run a cold operation, you know, we just get shit done. Uh, but I, I feel like, you know, I feel like some songs I have felt pretty vulnerable, like uh, after I've written them, maybe like not. And I guess by just being like, like some songs have been embarrassed, you know, to write. And it was like, and I guess you are embarrassed to like share them. But I think maybe that, makes it a good song when like, like our like suicide girl was like a song i felt kind of embarrassed but a lot of other ones are too may i ask what you mean like untitled maybe sure uh, why that song was embarrassing which it was interesting because that was a mental note i made about that song so you brought it up well embarrassing in the, in the sense of vulnerable so in the in the sense that like i feel like it shares something um like within myself that is you know scary or something like that and you know and i guess i don't know it's it's mostly stuff that's like only for me to know you know but it's like uh i don't know like uh it's like person it's intertwined and like personal and there, there's these kind of stuff in there and then I don't know. And, and there's certain, there's certain things I feel towards, towards that song or towards other songs that like inevitably, if I play it for someone, like they're going to feel what I feel, you know? And I, I guess like music is based on the assumption that if I feel something and I can play it, um, I'm assuming that the other person will feel the same thing upon listening to it. When, when you're writing something and you feel that vulnerability and you have that fear, how do you address that in the moment? Do you push forward or do you, do you, is there a struggle? Uh, no, I mean, I don't know. I'm just mostly excited to write a song and it's not really, <laughs> I just, I, there's not a struggle because if it sounds good, it, I want to play it, you know? Um, and like a good song will sound good and it'll be fun for me to play. Like that's, I don't know, like all my songs are fun for me to play. You know, that's their songs I continue to play. Um, and when you write a song or when you are writing a song, like you do it initially because you, you find something that's like fun and you want to like, you know, it's chasing the dragon or something. Um, but you just, you want to, you want to see it to its completion because you're having such a good time, you know, but then things are, you know, it can also be fun and be like vulnerable at the same time. But, but the thing that, you know, makes it 
so I'm able to like complete a song is just because it's fun for me to play, you know? Yeah. I want to keep playing out. This is probably something you're asked a lot, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I'm fucking curious. And, uh, what, how did it evolve to become the one person performance opposed to a band? Is that something you're asked a lot? I'm sure it is. Uh, keep talking. Well, actually, <laughs> hardly anyone asks it. Usually, they just uh, shout assumptions at me. <laughs> oh, I don't like to make assumptions. Um, That's a, a horrible way to live. Well, I guess. Well, I guess just like people after shows or whatever. Uh, there, there's like a typical like four or five com- comments that uh, whatever. Um, but uh, the the one person thing, I don't know. Like Clark and themselves, it actually started before. Uh, I came up with like what I do with the, the drums and things like that. But it was because I made all these albums. I learned how to multi-track and I made all these albums uh, kind of by myself where I was recording as the full band. Like I was the guitars and the drums and the basses. And I don't, I don't know. Like I didn't know that was like kind of a common thing at that time. But I named those albums Clark and himself. Uh and then I would have, and that was kind of just my solo project, I guess. So it was like a way to make music for a while. Um, and then when I pl- would play them, like sometimes I would form a band or sometimes I would just, you know, play guitar and sing. Um, there was like a big, there was kind of an issue of uh, like performance wise, like I wasn't able to uh, play the songs live as they sounded like uh, when they were recorded. How did you meet Don uh, Bowles? I met Don through, um, I guess, Plucky. He's the drummer of that band, The Warlocks. Um, and then I first saw him, like the first time I went to the High Free and Tavern, uh, where I used to have these, like Wednesday nights were like the wired up nights there. But like, I don't know, I was with a friend and uh, I, I think... Somebody pointed out to me that the person in the DJ booth was Don Bowles. Um, but, the, but the music, like I remember walking in there and just listening to this music and it was the fucking greatest music I've ever heard. Uh, and, I, and it was kind of like right when I had first moved to LA and I, I just thought like, wow, like everyone here must be so cool if they listen to this music all the time. <laughs> uh, you know, it's like, and I just, I don't know, I figured it was just like a common thing, but it, I just thought it was, you know, amazing. Um, and then later I, I like played, I, uh, I played the show with the Warlocks, um, in what, like February of 2019 or something. And I got to know Plucky, the drummer, and then Plucky introduced me to Dawn. Uh, and then I played a show at the Hyperion Tavern and then Dawn asked me, I don't know, Dawn really liked it. Uh, he seemed pretty excited and he asked me, uh, if I wanted to record, something with him and then I said yes um but we had our and then so that 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 was kind of like the sub what ended up turning into the sub pop seven inch single um but I mostly I mean like Don it was like the the junk shot glam records he plays um were just like amazing and I had never heard them you know before I was in the same room as Don um and like that that stuff's I don't know like speaking as a jaded musician, like that, <laughs> the, that's kind of the only stuff that actually sounds good to me. Um, that's so interesting. That, that's how I met Don, I guess. 
when I moved to LA, I felt like the same thing. I was like, oh, there's all this cool music around. I mean, it took me a while, but then I realized, you know, people listen to garbage too. But I've like, when I moved here, I was in your neighborhood. The little joy was a shithole and the shortstop didn't have a dance license. So it just had a great jukebox and you would just walk into either of those place any night and something great was playing and I, and KXOU I found right away. So I was like, oh, this town is fucking awesome. And then somewhere along the line, I came across bad music. <laughs> or music yeah. that wasn't for me. I can't say bad. That's that's wrong of me. I mean, there is bad music. You know. <laughs> it's not wrong. They had an idea and they failed to execute it. <laughs> it sucks as a result, you know. Yeah. That stuff happens. But maybe they love it and it makes them happy. Well, then they're stupid. <laughs> There, there is music. There is music that's not bad. It's just of the different taste, right? So I'd say fish is like not necessarily my cup of tea, but I wouldn't call it bad music. It's, I'd actually call it really good music, you know. That's or what it is, but it's not. I don't like it, you know, personally. But, um, but then there's people that try to sound like fish, and they just don't know exactly what they're doing, you know, and they have an idea. And they fail to execute it, you know. But I think that that's not just with music; it's just you know with anything that there is something. There are things that are actually bad, you know. And that's when yeah. you have an idea and you fail to execute it. You know? <laughs> uh, what what brought you to LA? Was it a random? Because I feel, and tell me if I'm wrong, you kind of have randomly moved around a bit. Like you a just, little bit, yeah. I'm fascinated um, because I wanted, I did that, and I was, I'm just curious about that journey of yours. Yeah, well, I don't know. Like I, you know, I was kind of randomly just trying to, you know, find other places to live besides Boise, Idaho. Um, and then at some point uh, in 2011, I went on my first tour, and I moved. I had the idea to move to New Orleans. Um, so I went on this 25 day tour down there, uh, and I lived in New Orleans for a couple of years or a few years. And then that's, kind of, that's kind of when I started touring around a lot more. Um, and that's when I made that documentary, the taxpayers go to Florida was when I first moved there. Um, cause they were in one of the bands I ended up, my friend Andrew was in that band. Um, and then I kind of knew them from Portland a little bit. Um, but I ended up meeting up with them on that tour. And then Rob from the taxpayers was also moving to New Orleans at the same time. Um, but that's, that's, I don't know, that's kind of a tangent, but I guess it was basically around like 2011, 2012. Like I'd kind of just started touring like maybe once or twice a year, like regularly. Um, and then I moved out of New Orleans well, I left New Orleans. I don't. I didn't really officially move. I was going to go back. Did you drink a lot in New Orleans? Because I feel like if I went there, I would. Well, just... you have to. <laughs> I know. There's I've, no way. I've only been there briefly, but boy, oh boy, was I fucking hammered and I ate like shit. And I'm just like, I would be dead. I would have been dead in about five months. Like, yeah. Well, it's a survival mechanism down there in some ways. I mean, <clears throat> and, and I guess that's you know you mentioned. Uh, you have alcohol issues. Probably not a great song to be in. I used to have a company. It, it, it gets yeah. I mean, people drink there. Like the amount of like I don't know. And and Boise, where I come from, that was or at least my friends uh, in particular were kind of hard drinking people. Um, 
And so I was used to it to some extent, but I, I remember telling people at the time, like for every one drink drinking anywhere else, there's like three drinks drinking in New Orleans, like if you're there. And so it's like the, like, I don't know. And I knew people there who used to order triples at the bar, like, <laughs> like three shots, you know? Oh yeah. Drink. Oh, I've bartended. I uh, get it. I just, I never saw that until I moved down there. Uh, and I w- I'm but, assuming they pour heavy there to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's a drinking town, but it gets so hot there. Um, it's like, you kind of, the only way to like forget about the heat is to <laughs> kind of just be casually drunk all day, you know, and everyone drives slow, you know, it's, it's chill. <laughs> yeah. I would have, I would love, I want, I almost, at the time I went there, I was like, I, if I didn't have somebody back home, which became the person I made babies with, I would have fucking stayed. I would have abandoned everything and just stayed. That was my feeling when I went there. Yeah. That's, it's a place you can do that. Definitely. I don't know what that journey would have been. Probably not a pretty one. Probably a lot of bruises and skinned knees. <laughs> yeah. Well, it can go either way down there. How long were you there? Um, I lived there from 2011 to 2013, I guess, or like halfway. And then, I left in, I went on tour again in June of 2013 and I kept on meaning to come back. Um, but I did this whole thing and then I was like, I ended up in Portland uh, for, I don't know, it was like in August and September and then I played a bunch of shows in Portland um, and that's when I, I put out a, the first Clark and himself's tape uh, was released that year on Curly Cassettes, um, just Sam Farrell's label. And then I met, I met a bunch of Portland musicians. Oh, and then I never answered your question about when I came up with the, the Clark and himself thing. Uh, at a certain point, I did. <laughs> and uh, uh, I just, and I was almost, it was almost going to be a different band, you know? And then I just, I had this moniker that I was already using called Clark and the Himself. And then I was almost going to change it for this like new thing. And then at some point I was like, oh, wait a second. This whole, this drums and guitar at the same time business is like even more Clark and the Himself like than the, the previous one or whatever. So I just, I just started to do that. And then it was like, people liked it, you know, cause I could go on tour by myself and do that. And it was like, like a full show, you know, it seemed to get people's attention. No one's ever late uh, for a rehearsal. Yeah. Yeah. That makes logistics easy <laughs> um, in terms of managing the band. Uh, uh, but yeah, I kind of, I just ended up after that, I just ended up touring like a lot, kind of like I, I wasn't really... Like sometimes I would, I, I think I, I went back to Boise for like a few months and then I like, I tour around for like a month or two and then end up somewhere else, you know, like end up in Olympia for a month or end up in like Missoula for like a while. And then I kind of just did that. And then I didn't really have, you know, there wasn't like a budget uh, for me to like be able to afford to like pay rent anywhere um, necessarily. And then it was hard for me to have like a regular job. Uh, so it just kind of, I don't know, I was like, you know, rely on the courtesy of friends who would let me stay at their houses while I wasn't touring. I was going to ask, like, are you just touring and then you end up in a town and you're like, well, I guess I'm here for a while. 
A little bit, yeah. Um, for like 2013 and 2014 was a lot like that for me. And then, uh, I mean, not, yeah. Or, well, I don't know. I guess that, that was the kind of my life up until I moved to LA and to some extent. But then, that would happen. But then places weren't, I tried, sometimes I'd like actually try to move. Or I don't know. I forgot what I, I did. I think I just like stay somewhere. It wasn't like moving somewhere. Um, but then I had my, my friend Isa would let was like, it was like storing my stuff at her house in Boise. And then I could always come back to Boise and sleep on her couch. Um, and so I just do that, you know, did you ever know what else to do? Get to the point where you're like, I just want to fucking feel like I have a home or did you, or was that more? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it got really old. Uh, uh, at a certain point, like maybe around like 2016, and a lot of it, do like you know, it's somewhere in between there. Like my mom died, and there was this whole sort of like, like I I don't know, my dad remarried this woman, and you know the house I grew up in, uh, like I wasn't allowed to like go there anymore, and I couldn't you know I couldn't go there and like stay there, and I didn't really have. There, there, there's some like you know because there's a certain point where I was like touring around and traveling around and and I realized there's this thing you know if, if people have like parents or like this family kind of situation it it, it presents like a, a constant in their life and the fact that you know it's there like you know you have somewhere to go to um changes your outlook on your ability to like go out and do things you know and then at the point where like I didn't have anywhere to go. Like I didn't know there was anywhere I could go to. And I just, you know, I'd be like, you know, whatever, like touring someplace or something like that. And then come to the end of like, you know, whatever show run where I had no idea what to do. And then I just, you know, I'd have to crawl back to like Issa's house in Boise or something. And like that, at, at, at a certain, at a certain point, it kind of became a huge bummer, I think around, up until the point, like, you know, I moved to LA and then even while I was in LA, but like 2000, I don't know, when it was like 2017 was like really, it was just like kind of exhausting at that point. And I just really wanted some place to live. And then I was living on the Oregon coast in my friend's garage in Newport, Oregon. And sometimes I would have places to live, but it's always, it'd be just like, you know, the crustiest place it, it, you could like, fit a person you know for a while so like i told you about that that five by five room in the basement like that was one of them but then i had a nice garage for a while um behind gills k9 in boise for 2015 which is actually a pretty good year um but then yeah i don't know so i, I would live in these you know basically like you know i'd never have i never lived in like an actual room i, I don't think until 2019 when i moved to la yeah, it's. Um, I found that when I was, because I moved around a lot, and because I lived in fucking shitty neighborhoods, that it became like what I started looking for. And like when I was look, like I, so I would never pick a nice place. I'd be like, oh, that that dump. <laughs> yeah, no, that was like I, I, every. Yeah, I have that problem too. My uh, partner I'm, will be like this place is terrible. I'm like, what? Like, and I'll think of like the other places I've lived and I'm like, no, this is, this is all right. <laughs> There's no junkie screaming in the front yard. Yeah. Yeah. I have that issue also. 
Um, but I've been, you know, LA is actually kind of surprising. Surprisingly, I was like trying to find st- stability. It was like really messing with me because I didn't feel grounded. You know, there was like nothing that was grounding me. Um, and as, and at that point, like I moved, I was kind of living in Boise sort of up until 2016. Um, and then I moved completely. I like, I moved away from there, you know, to never go back again. Um, and then I was, I don't know. And then I was like really desperately just looking for, like, I just wanted to live, like I'd never successfully lived anywhere longer than six months. And that was like a record, you know, if I would do that, but usually it would just be like, you know, a month or two months or something like that. And then 2017 was like really hard because I was like on tour and then I didn't have anywhere. Like that was a year where I was like, I don't know. It was crazy. Like I was on the Oregon coast and then, uh, and then I left there. Then I recorded the In Your Heart album. Then I lived in Sam Farrell's uh, uh, champion bus, the Southwester for a week. Uh, and then I lived at my friend Jordan's place for a week or two in Portland. And then I went on tour. Uh, and then Nick Delfs, uh, who lives in Boise, let me stay at his house for a week. Oh no, I stayed at Nisha's. Oh wait, no, I was at Nick's for a week. And then I got really sick. And then uh, my friend Misha in Portland told me I could stay at her house. And so I got, I kind of got a little more time at Nick's because I couldn't drive anywhere for about a week or two. And then I stayed at Nisha's house. And then I think I went on tour again. And then I don't know. And then in, I don't know. I forgot exactly where I was. And then I was in Boise for a month. And then I ended up in Albuquerque. Um, and then I moved to LA. What? At the, in the beginning of January 2018. Was there a specific reason you picked LA or was it kind of random? Uh, I, well, I went on tour here that year and um, I played a couple of shows, but it, the reason I picked it is because when I fell asleep, I fell asleep in Los Angeles. And then when I woke up the next morning, it kind of had like, it kind of felt like normal, like kind of had like a home feeling, you know? And like sometimes when you go to some place where you don't live and you fall asleep and then you wake up, feels like you're a stranger like visit you're like where am i like what is this strange place <laughs> i happen to find myself in you know because you you know it's like fresh you're like i have to re-register the memory of the locational memory but like la felt i don't know just like waking up that one day uh just like oh it kind of feels like a home feels like home i was curious just out of my own curiosity the whole deerhoof thing did you know those folks before that you played with them, which is how I learned about you. I will admit I did not uh, know of your music beforehand, which actually surprises me because you're right in my wheelhouse of what I really like musically. So I was like, how did I miss this for one? And uh, yeah, uh, I, I was just I for the how. record. I had not known you, which I'm, which is weird to me because we know mutual people for starters. So that it seems like you should have become in my view. Anyway, I'm going to sound like a. Well, I wasn't doing too many things these last couple of years, so oh. I don't know. But you know Grady and whatnot, and you're. I just and I'm not to you know. I seem to know, have my no. I I actively seek out things. So anyway, so you know, I, I was actually I was surprised. I looked at your website and I was like, oh, I know this person. I know that person. Yeah, <laughs> it was kind of like that. Yeah. We should have been pals for a long time. I don't know what happened. But I'm going to sound like I was going to, I was tired the day of the Deerhoof show. 
And I was like, oh, I don't, like, I struggled with going there early. I got there an hour early, by the way. But I was like, I, I wanted to, I was like, I need to go see the opening band because that's the proper thing to do. And I was... Thank you. Well, you know, like, because... Not too many people do that. But that's like, I'm like, it's important to go support and I can go fucking learn something. And when the second you started, I was like, holy fuck, I'm so glad I came early. (laughs) Like, cool. It was, you're so fucking good. I just want to say that. And I immediately was just like, okay, this, I'm going to reach out to this person and see if they'll talk to me. Because this is the only way I can get people to talk to me. They avoid me at all costs. But I have a podcast, so they feel it's maybe something to it. <laughs> it's, it's a good method. Um, but Yeah. And I regret, like I told you, I got in my car and then I saw you sitting out front smoking. And I was like, God damn it. I should have fucking looked around. Because I would have approached you and said, hey there, person. You're pretty, yeah. you're pretty fucking great. <laughs> I probably would have just said, thank you. <laughs> Fuck off, guy. That's what you would have um, said. <clears throat> no, you, you, you could have. Um, uh, Did yeah, you th- feel like you for... tore it up that night? Because I feel like you I tore it up. I felt pretty good about it. Um, and I, I've been trying to, I haven't been playing too many shows this year. Like, just my rule for this year was just to play the shows I would want to go to. Um, but I feel like it kind of, I'm like pretty excited, you know, when I do play a show and that, and that one was you know, like kind of, you know, I was into it. Uh, I felt pretty good about it. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I don't know if you know this, but you kept looking directly in my direction. I don't know how you would know that, but you kept, it oh. felt like you were looking at me. Just Maybe I this. was. I don't know. Didn't yeah, you feel an extra warmth? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. I try to look around sometimes. They, I've been doing this thing. I've been asking for like spotlight lighting. Uh, so, but as a as a result of that, um, it 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 kind of blinds the audience out. So I can't. It's you know. I I guess I was looking at you. So that's what I'm trying to say. Okay. But not looking at me, but not. Because you yeah, probably some, actually sometimes I do like to make direct eye contact because I feel like it freaks people out because I don't actually need to look at what I'm doing. Like I can play my whole set with my eyes closed, you know, in the dark. Um, and so, like, and I, I don't look at people because it, it kind of breaks my concentration in some ways. Like I'm really just kind of thinking about the songs and focused on them. But every once in a while, like maybe about halfway through my set, I do like to like start making direct eye contact with people as I'm doing the thing I do. Because I feel like it, uh, I don't know, I just feel like it freaks them out a little bit. <laughs> Did you know people of Deerhoof before that evening? Uh, well, I mean, to, well, so I played, I guess, well, sort of. Kind of. Um, like Greg and I, well, I played the show at the Church of Fun years ago um, uh, with this band Blank uh, that I think Greg played a little bit. That like, He was there at that show. And I had known Greg just from like around, like it seems like he does stuff, you know, and he did like, he produced the, the Earl, Earl Valley record, which is great. It's a great record. Um, and then, you know, certain people I know 
or whatever. But that show came of it was kind of funny, actually. I'll tell you the whole story behind it if you want. Please. Um, but, but I was playing so before the Deerhoof show, I did this residency at the Echo, um, which is like a month long thing where you uh, you play every Monday and there's like other bands involved. And that, and then that was like a thing. I don't know how to say this, but so they don't just, I'll just go into the whole fucking thing. Cause they, that's the only way I can explain the story. <laughs> so the people at the echo, the space land people, which was bought by live nation uh, a few years ago, a couple of years ago. Um, they asked me to play this residency and I was like, okay. And I was kind of excited about it. Um, and then I like asked them about money and some things like, you know, before it was even booked, and they like gave him greenlit like September and it was like got the whole thing done. And then they just, you know, and they like booked the whole residency and then like didn't get back to me about the money thing. And they finally got back to me like a month later or not, not a month, a month before the residency, which was actually three months after I initially asked. And they were like, nobody's going to get paid. Um, <laughs> but they were like, but the bar does extremely well like we can maybe quietly pull some money out or something like that. And I was like, okay, well that's, you know, it doesn't really wish you would have told me nobody was going to get paid. Cause I just booked all these bands, you know, and like Don was DJing every single night. He does not, you know, he's got to take lift rides to the venue. Uh, but so this, I don't know. So whatever I did this whole residency thing. And then like the first day it came by and it was kind of, it was Monday, sort of like labor day thing where it was like hot. And then it was like, I don't know, whatever the second night and the third night. And they just, you know, that and they just, there's, they got all these like security guards there. They got like four or five security guards. And you got to go through this like metal detector thing. And they just like search the bands, you know, like, okay, you're searching the people, but you're like, you know, bands are bringing in their like guitars and like drum gear and all this stuff. And these security guards are like going through it. It's like, what do you think's in here? It's a, you know, uh, whatever. So that was kind of, so I kept on asking the echo for money basically. And so every day I'd come in there and I would like email them a few more times. And I was like, what about that quiet bar money? And it seemed like by the first day, like that, that wasn't going to really happen. So I kind of just, it's like, who do I need to talk to here to, to make sure all these bands get paid? Um, and then one of their things for, for the echo agreement for the residency band. And I, I kept on trying to advocate. I was like, look, it's like three or four other bands here like playing tonight. You know, it's like they need to get paid. Uh, but one of their excuses, or they say they do it for like the music community by like donating the venue every night. And I guess it's been a thing that has been happening for a long time. But one of their excuses not to pay anybody is to give the residency band um, like a bigger show down the road, you know, like a bigger venue or something like that. And like this particular one, was that Deerhoof show? Um, and then I was like, okay, whatever. But it's like these other people need to get paid. So I just, I kept on going up the email chain, you know, and there was something that happened uh, like in the last residency, residency show, like the fourth one. Wait, I can't talk about this on this podcast. I don't know. <laughs> whatever. Uh, <laughs> I just realized where this is going. Uh, okay. Well, I'll anyway, so I, I will, no, I'll finish it up a little bit, but yeah, I asked, I asked them, I asked, you know, I went up the email chain and I emailed some from someone from live nation. I was like, look, you can't expect bands to play at your venues for free, you know? And it's like, whatever. And I listed, you know, the reasons as why they can't, 
And I was like, you need to figure out how to do it. And then I was like, maybe you're just, you know, bad at managing. And I was like, listed all these, you know, it's like they got too many. It was like, gave them some helpful hints on how they can save some money. <laughs> so they can pay the bands, you know, like they pay everybody else who works there. <laughs> Uh, and then that was like at 2 p.m. I emailed them or something like that. And then like 4 p.m. I like show up at the Echo for like sound check. And I'm like even a little bit late. And like all the doors are closed. So I'm like outside the doors, like with all my gear. And I'm like knocking on the closed doors. And it's like no one's coming. So I like texting people. And then somebody from the Echo gets back to me and they're like, oh, the show's canceled. They canceled the show. And I was like, what? And they're like, no one told you? I was like, nobody told me. Um, and then, so I, I don't know what I, at a certain point I was like, almost going to head over to stories and see if they wanted to do the show there. But instead I just went home and cried for like an hour when I talked to Don on the phone. But, uh, yeah, they sent me some sort of fucking fucked up email that was like, blah, blah, blah. I thought we explained how we're not going to pay anybody to you. <laughs> um, and it seemed like, you know, I was like causing problems by asking for money. And so they, they said uh, they'd prefer to cancel the show rather than continue the strain on both of us. The strain? they were like, fuck yourselves. <laughs> totally, yeah. But then at the end of the email, they were like, but I'd, we, you know, we still want to pitch you for more gigs and we hope you can still play this Deerhoof show, you know, at the Regent on the 23rd. Uh, so I rebooked the Echo Residency show at Zebulon the the week later and kind of around that same day um uh i don't know well i don't know that same day i like emailed uh i was like got in contact with greg and kind of told him and i was like and then i i don't know some things that happened because <laughs> i just i was kind of afraid they were going to cancel that on me you know and so i just wanted to make sure because I think it was Durhav ultimately like wanted me to play the show, and I think they approved me or something like that. But I, I, I know Greg a lot better now, I guess, as a result. He's a nice person. I, I find uh, he's great. I, I, I have nothing but admiration for that guy. He's an inspired... I did a interview with him that was outside of the podcast because I was trying to do a documentary about streaming. And he gave me an hour of his time and I couldn't get producers interested in the uh, documentary probably because there's not a shit ton of money, you know, because that's what those motherfuckers want. Everyone who wants money. But yeah. what this tale that you tell me just makes me realize this how because Live Nation owns so fucking much now. And they it's own crazy. Just, they're they're just buying up all these venues like nobody's business. And there's more of them for sale now after the pandemic, you know. The, I have two thoughts about that. I think fuck Alive Nation, and that's fucking terrible because they're like, because as a guy who used to own or not own, I managed a bar. I know what the fucking take is on that. I know exactly what they fucking make on a night there. Like I could take a wild guess that they're probably in four grand that night. So yeah, well, somebody's making money, not the bands playing. Yeah, and that like to the show, holding you know? that's just pay for play. Like, oh, but you could get a bigger show down the road. Like, fuck you, you got money, you can pay. Totally, you're yeah. live fucking nation, you can pay. And it, well, and it's like that whole you know, and you know, I, the live nation bought the residencies from Spaceland, uh, but uh, it's the whole the whole notion is like, look, it's not just me playing the show. It's like Don's DJing de- de- the show, like all these other. You know, and it's like the night that it was like there's so many, 
and their whole excuse of like, oh, we do it for the music community by like donating the venue and seeing who the bands book. Like, fuck, fuck off. You. Then you canceled the last residency show two hours, three hours before the show. Didn't tell anybody, right? Left it up to me to tell everyone. That's a and power so it's move. Like, you can't, yeah, no, to, I did not expect them to do that, but that was, I guess they felt it was, you know, that was, that was their card move they choose to pick. Uh, but it's like they canceled on everyone. It's like, you didn't just cancel on me. You canceled on all the bands, all the other band. Like you canceled on Don, you canceled on, you know, three other bands, like on top of not paying them and everyone who was going to go see that show. And so it's like you canceled. And who does that? Who cancels a show? three hours before it's going to happen. You know, like there's like, there better be a fucking bomb threat at the venue. <laughs> like what the fuck? Like, but I feel, and maybe I'm nuts here, but like this kind of thing where the live nation starts having all this power to me, that just is going to spurn a, or inspire like a DIY. Like people go into, when I moved to LA, there was all kinds of fucking independent little shows popping up all over the place. And I can't help but think, People will just be like, fuck this. We, we don't need you. Like, we don't really need you. We can- no, they, well, Live Nation, I was trying to think about, like, what Live Nation actually provides for a venue, right? Other than giving a bunch of money to the person who sells it. Um, but it's like, what did they actually do? You know what I mean? And I talked to these people at the Echo, and it's like, you know, I'd bring up the fact that Live Nation is a $21 billion company. It was like, surely they got like a hundred bucks to fucking pay the bands, you know? Yeah. Which is not a lot, you know? It's like, I don't know. Uh, and they're and dangling they're like, that carrot. They're dangling the carrot <clears throat> of playing for Deerhoof or with Deerhoof. And then they, it's a festival. Yeah. Carrot well, it's not and... just, well, because it's, it's their carrot to dangle because, because they have this venue conglomerate. Right. And so if you're a, if you're a band like Deerhoof, if you're a band that's, you know, maybe a big a middle sized or bigger sized band, it's like, you don't have too many options for venue spaces for people to go play your stuff. Right. And especially in LA, there's almost no venues besides live nation or golden voice venues of that size that are, like, I mean, I mean, there's like a few that are independently operated, but it's like, you've got who owns the lodge. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, okay. I'll open a venue. Is that what you're getting at here, Clark? <laughs> well, yeah. But even if you do open a venue, it's like live nation is going to come along and try to like buy it from you event- eventually. And then, and then because they own ticket masters, these people that do own operate like independent venue, um, venues, like their tickets end up on Ticketmaster, Right. Without there. And the, you, you can like, you know, like I listened to this whole NPR thing where it was like this venue owner, and this live one of the people who works for Live Nation and like somebody else in this venue owner was talking to, to the Live Nation person. He was like, Yeah, like our tickets end up on Ticketmaster. And I ha- I had to sue Live Nation to get our tickets to go off of Ticketmaster. Um and and the whole like even in that and like even at the Echo, they were just like, Yeah, they're a twenty one billion dollar company, but they don't provide us, we still have to exist and operate as an independent venue, you know, without their support. So we don't have any extra money. We can fucking pay the bands, you know, that invite everyone to the venue. God, it's so we can so sell $10 cores to them. Uh, and so, and, and then even this Live Nation person, the NPR thing, there was just like, oh, that's not our fault. Like, we don't set the ticket prices. Like, it's the bands who set the ticket prices. Or like, oh, the reason this, this stuff is so high is because of someone else. Or like, we don't actually do that. It's somebody else who does that. 
And then the whole thing when they they canceled the show on me because I kept on asking people for money. I asked the wrong people for money. Um, it's like it was just some. It was like, oh, I thought I already explained to you that we're not going to pay you. And it's like it's always somebody else's fault. It's no one's actual fault. And so I was like, okay, so like, like, and then I was like, just leave it. It was like, what the fuck does Live Nation actually do? You know what I mean? It's like, what service do they provide? Yeah. Like, I have no idea. It's like mob you know? shit. It's literally mob shit. Yeah. Well, and the whole, the, the whole dangling a show above you as an excuse not to pay any of the bands, this mafia tactic, and the whole complaining, asking for money, then canceling the show three hours beforehand. That is another mafia tactic. Oh, fuck everything, Clark. <laughs> yeah. So you got me started. I was really bummed out about this shit and I just kind of forgot about it recently. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> if I was, but, if we would have done this in person, then I would have given you a hug and I would have made everything oh. okay. Uh, that seems nice. Thank you. Seems nice. <laughs> like, <laughs> Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Conversations with Dwyer. Hey, remember, there's a part two to this episode. Go to the show notes. Go to my website and become a Patreon subscriber. For $5, you can hear Clark and I talk about pirates and other things. And whether pirates fuck. I think we talk about that. I can't remember. Anyway, go. thank you very much. Thank you.